Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Uh, In 2017, I was part of a committee for Christianity Today, an outside committee. I wasn't at CT at the time. Uh, that was tasked with uh, with looking at the candidates for Christianity Today Book of the Year, and the ultimate winner is such an extraordinary book that I find myself coming back to it uh, again and again and again. And I also found myself uh, immediately after that looking up everything that I could find by the author and reading it. It's called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about that and some other writings later. But let me introduce you to our guest. Fleming Rutledge is an Episcopal priest, a best-selling author. Uh, She is a widely revered uh, preacher whose sermon collections have uh, received acclaim all across uh, denominational lines. And of course, she is the author of book after book after book, not just The Crucifixion. There's also a really insightful book on Advent in addition to the smaller uh, essays. Uh, She served from in parish ministry from 1975 to 1997, including 14 years as assistant and then senior associate at Grace Church in New York City. Fleming Rutledge, I'm really grateful for your taking the time to talk to me today. Well, I would follow Russell Moore almost <laughs> anywhere. You are a revered figure in my circles at any rate. Not all circles, I'm sure, but... We are very grateful to you for well, your courage. Likewise, thank you for that. I I am wondering. Uh, I think about often uh, Frederick Beekner talking about preaching, and he said, "There's that one moment where in which the congregation is is asking, is it true? 
And so one of the things, ever since I've, I've uh, thought about that uh, again in recent uh, days, I've started asking uh, everyone I talk to just about that question, which is, as somebody who's given your life to Christian ministry, how, how do you know it's true? I'm going to go around in a circle okay. to get to that, because the first thing I thought of when you said, is it true? This is, this is just the way my mind worked in this case. I thought, how can they tell whether they know it's true unless they know what it is that's being said? Mm. And there's so many different things being said or not said about Jesus' horrible death that it would be hard for someone to know whether they thought it was true or not. Is it true that he was crucified? Probably everybody would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Even the skeptics would agree that Jesus of Nazareth was probably crucified by the Romans. Mm-hmm. But why was he crucified and who was he? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And how does it affect the world or the individual believer or the church or institutions of the earth how what is it that we're offering when we say is it true is it true in what way and i find that the responses i get when i ask people what does this all mean they're so different and in many cases so unrelated to the biblical witness because people just don't know what the church has taught about Jesus' death, and they don't really know the Bible very well, Mm. most people. So before I ask the question, before I, in the pulpit, I'm thinking, these people want to know if this is true. I want to know, I want to be sure that there's something for them to listen to that is challenging enough for them to say, is this true? Mm-hmm. Such a complex proclamation, the cross of Christ. It sounds so simple, but there is such complexity involved in it. And a response to it, I think, involves some kind of personal commitment, voluntary or involuntary, mm-hmm. to some version of what it means what's happening. I'm going to teach a course on the crucifixion. I know I'm going widely afield of what you actually asked. Oh, that's fine. I'm going to teach, I'm thinking as I talk, I'm going to teach a three-week course at a church locally uh, in a few weeks, and I thought that I would try to take a slightly different tack because I've done this many times, of course, and I would ask the question to begin with, what is happening here? Mm. And that could be answered so many different ways. A person who doesn't know anything would say, well, that's a man being executed. Mm. That's what's happening. Or that's a man being tortured. Or that's the way it was in the Roman days. Or so on. They're simple. Their, their response to the crucifixion nowadays, the average museum go or say, looking at a painting of the crucifixion, I would say the average 
person in off the street at the Metropolitan Museum doesn't know what is going on mm. when they see a representation of the crucifixion. They know that something like this happened and that it's a famous incident and that it's a man named Jesus who they've heard of. But I find that the knowledge of Jesus Christ is so weak and thin in the culture at large and in many parts of the church that for me, at least, it was worth 20 years of my life Mm. to try to say something. And I'm very, very thankful that there have been some people who have read the book and find it worth reading. I do try to say to everyone that those 625 pages don't have to be read all at a time. Mm. You can just read a chapter. The chapters stand alone. You can read the introduction and a chapter. Some people just read the footnotes. That's fine, too. (laughs) You know, uh, you mentioned sort of widespread biblical illiteracy. Do you think that that loss of biblical literacy, uh, does that make our task harder or easier because because there are some people who would say, well, it actually makes it easier because we don't have to go in and and deconstruct wrong ideas that people have. They're 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 coming at it coming at it fresh. Uh, or would you say it really is uh, much more of a challenge than it would have been maybe at the beginning of your ministry? Well, I do think it's harder now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been in the business nearly fifty years, maybe even longer than that if you count little talks that I gave when I was in college. But on the other hand, just because people have been coming to church most of their lives and have heard the Bible read in church and maybe even have taken classes doesn't necessarily mean that the real impact, the unique impact of what Jesus has done and who he is definitely needs to be freshened up, shall we say, in any circle. Mm-hmm. As I wrote the book over 20 years or more, I just became more and more aware of the depths of the scriptural pictures that we have, thought constructions, um, images, mental constructions. What does this mean? What is happening? Who is this? Why is he undergoing this? Those are questions, it seems to me, that are so fundamental Mm. that they need to be addressed to everybody all over again all the time. So Mm -hmm. I don't have a clear sense that it's either either easier or less easy. For instance, let's say I go and I speak to an audience of um, scholarly types, especially if they're younger and sort of know it all. (laughs) And they will immediately say, Anselm was a total disaster for the church. His ideas were crazy and inhumane and unbiblical. And we have to recognize that Anselm is of no use today. And they'll say this in a very smart, alecky way, as if everybody will agree. So I did a whole chapter on Anselm and why we need to pay attention to Anselm and why all this debunking of Anselm is a big mistake. Mm. That's only one of many, many, many ways in which one gets attacked if preaching the whole picture of Christ. Another famous, famously difficult 
subject is the so-called substitutionary atonement. I don't like to call it that, but that is supposed to be a great villain of interpretation in some circles. And I spend a lot of time defending the idea that there is something in what we see on the cross that tells us that Jesus is there instead of us. Mm. That's the basic idea of substitution. Mm -hmm. Somehow he is inserting himself into the place of death and hell, if you will, that belong to somebody else. Mm. Who is that somebody else? Well, then that is where, unless we can understand that we are personally involved in the system of sin and death that the world operates on, then we can't understand what's going on. Mm. It's not a pathetic spectacle for us to wonder at. Mm. Not to feel sorry for Jesus sort of mentality. Yeah, that's the name for that. I can't even, I'm at the age where I can't always remember the words I want to say. We're supposed to be deeply affected by it, moved by it, oh, such suffering. But to what point? To what end? Mm. What is accomplished? What is done? Is anything finished? Jesus said it was finished. What is finished? Mm. These are extremely complex questions, but they shouldn't be answered in theories. Mm. And that's a big argument of my book. We're not talking about theories. We're talking about thought complexes. We're talking about images. We're talking about patterns. Some of it is literary even. It's so instructive always to listen to the black church talking about Jesus' crucifixion. Mm. Because there's a level of understanding there that most white people just don't grow up with. The sense that we were prisoners, we were slaves, we have been freed. He is the one who suffered for us. Suffering is the way he did it. God has parted the Red Sea one more time. Mm. We just don't, the white church doesn't think that way. And so it's very instructive to listen to the way that a lot of black people talk about Jesus' suffering and death. Now, it's not a complete picture. To get the complete picture, I think we have to spend a lifetime investigating and thinking about it and being open to all the imagery in the uh, New Testament about the way in which Jesus' contemporaries and his disciples and then the apostles interpreted the death for the people of the first century. I think unless congregations are taught that there is all of this available to us in the New Testament and the Old Testament always, um, in the Bible, let's say, this Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, uh, it's, it's a lifetime of investigation and awe and wonder and transformation. Do you find that you, you talk about in the book how uh, so many of these, as you would, would call them, not theories, but uh, motifs and, and images of the cross, is, is there one of them that you have found resonates at first? So if, if, you're, if you're talking to people, is there one, would there be one of those motifs that, that you found people in our culture, they understand better than they do the others? 
or are they all equally foreign to us now? Well, I, I, I really I hadn't quite thought of it that way, Russ. I, um, Russell, um, I don't think I can answer that right away. I've got to think mm-hmm. about it a minute, and I'll think about it by talking about the way in which I think the the book is constructed around, I think it's nine themes and a chapter for each, plus a lot of additional chapters with additional thoughts with an attempt to build up a, a total picture. So there are nine of these chapters. The, the sacrifice is one. The ransom is another. The substitution is another. Again, I'm looking for the right word. Recapitulation is one of the important themes that people often don't even know exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so forth. There are nine of them. And I believe that they can all be grouped under two headings. Um, the substitution theme and the theme Christus Victor, as the early church in Latin called it, Christ the Conqueror. The two groups of themes grouped in that way, I think, that that highlights the fact that we've really got two quite different ways of understanding Christ's death. And unless we can get a good grip on both of these ways, mm-hmm. something's going to be seriously missing. Mm-hmm. That would be my way of putting it anyhow. I'm not sure that I'm answering your exact... No, I think that does. Yeah. And it it seems to me that that both of those realities, uh, people do have an awareness of those things more than they think. So with uh, sin, there are many people who say, well, there's not a, there's not a concept of sin uh, now. But it, it's really clear that we're dealing with all of these issues of guilt and shame and uh, what do we do with the ways that we've harmed each other? Uh, and then there would be people who would say, well, Christus Victor doesn't really work because modern people don't believe in demons and so forth. And yet it seems to me that also is present. Even if people don't have a language to articulate it, they do feel uh, helpless sometimes in front of uh, in front of the powers and sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, enslaved in, in many ways, if only to themselves. I, I think people people really do have a concept of those things now uh, as much as they they ever have. Would you agree with that? Well, I'm not going to say yes or no. Basically, I'd say yes. But I have a complex response to that mm. because the way that the Bible, particularly the post-apocalyptic, I mean the post-exilic writings in the Old Testament, the post-exilic writings in the Old Testament are a way that Israel had of coming to terms with what had happened to them. It seemed that all the promises of God had been false. They lost their country. They lost their community. They lost their promise, or so they thought. And so a whole new way of thinking about a victorious God came into being after the exile. And Isaiah 40 through 55 is the first and clearest example of this new way of thinking that there's going to be a complete break. Mm between what Paul called this present evil age and the age to come. And that's part of what we're seeing in the crucifixion. The crucifixion has to be as drastic as it is because what we see there is the collision of the ages. Mm. And 
when Jesus says, consummatum est, it is finished, he means two different things. He means I've done it, and he means the end is upon us. And that's, Paul writes, I can't quote it quite exactly, we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in First Corinthians. The end of the ages has come upon Jesus and upon us in him, meaning that his resurrection is the first action of the new of the age to come. Not I don't like to call it the new age because of all this new age right. stuff. The age to come. But that can only be seen by faith. And yet there are so many examples of Christians who have died heroically in terrible circumstances and have spoken in a triumphant way, even in that ultimate situation, that Jesus is victor. Mm. I've got a whole folder full of examples of people who, knowing that they were to to lose everything they had or even to be killed, they still would say Jesus is victor. Mm. or some words to that effect. Jesus has conquered the evil power that has been been set against God since, well, I started to say since the fall, the evil one was there before the fall, and we don't know how the evil one got there because God did not create evil. My chapter, I'll, I'll just put this out there, my chapter in my crucifixion book, which is called The Descent into Hell. Yes, I was about to bring that up. I, I believe that chapter is my best work uh, and the most sort of unusual. I have really tried, I spent many years on that chapter, and I've really tried to come to terms with the importance of understanding what evil is mm. and who it is, because it's, as Flannery O'Connor never tired of personal pointing out it's a personal force, an adversary actively working to defeat the purposes of God. Satan is a personal intelligence, whatever else Satan may be. It's not a kind of metaphysical blur. It's an action. It's an active force. I like the term, the adversary. Now, there have been, as a lot of what I'm saying here is being, is in my book. There are some significant scholars, one at Columbia University here in New York, who are not believers, but who think that we need a language to speak about evil. We need something comparable to the image of Satan to talk about the kind of evil that besets the human race. Now, there's so many things going on right now that illustrate this. When Russia invades Ukraine, it's not just a local conflict. This sweeps up the whole world into the possibility, incomprehensible possibilities, really. We do not even begin to recognize all of the interrelated factors that could or could not, will or will not come into play because of this ongoing conflict. All day today, while I was driving around, I was listening to the various programs on the radio, the news programs about all the shootings, the school shootings, the shopping center shootings, and how some of these young, very young people have been in two shootings themselves. And 
I just don't know what this is, if not a great wickedness, a great work of Satan, in which we are all caught, and we don't seem to know how to get out of it. Mm. The country is, as everyone is saying, is torn apart, as not since the Civil War have we seen anything like it. And all of this is the work of Satan. And that's not a glib thing to say, because to say right. that it's the work of Satan means that the church is called to stand in the place where it's put and resist the works of the world, the flesh, and the devil, as the baptismal liturgy says. I pledge, not I pledge, I can't remember exactly how the language is, but I, I am here in my baptism dedicated to, as we used to say very politically incorrectly in the Episcopal Church, we Receive this child into the congregation of Christ's flock, that she, it could be either she or he, will fight manfully under Christ's banner mm. against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant unto her life's end. I said that when I, my granddaughter, I mean, my two daughters were baptized, and I still miss it because we can't say it because it's about fighting manfully. Mm -hmm. But baptism is, in part, an immersion into the struggle between the future of God, which is absolutely certain, and the work of the evil one, who will never cease to wage this battle until the final day. When Christ yeah. comes again. Now, that's not the kind of language I hear very often in the church. Yeah. And when I do hear it, unfortunately, uh, it's usually, and I don't hear it in person. I hear it on the, you know, the media, or I hear about it, or I read about it, or I hear people talk like this, that we, this particular group of Christians is the only group that understands what the issues really are. And yeah. we are the pure ones who are fighting the fight against all these terrible left-wing people uh, or vice versa. The mainline churches have been very guilty of virtue signaling, I think. I think that's a useful phrase. Mm -hmm. And virtue signaling is not the gospel. Never has been, never should have been, never should be. The only virtue that we can signal is that of God himself. We yeah. are very poor creatures. We are very weak, flawed, failed instruments. But God cannot fail, does not fail, will not fail. And any Christian who places him or herself on the front lines of the struggle is going to find that the enmity of various human groups against God's purposes is seemingly unconquerable. Mm. But nothing can conquer the victorious Christ who was raised from the dead. This episode is brought to you in part by Matthew 5-9 Fellowship, who supports evangelical pastors and leaders in shepherding their communities to live the gospel and place their identity in Jesus Christ above partisanship and societal divisions. Jesus has called his disciples to be peacemakers, and that call is particularly needed in our often toxically polarized society. The Matthew 5-9 Fellowship provides resources to help pastors, leaders, and their communities faithfully navigate difficult issues without dividing over them. 
It fosters relationship by connecting like-minded evangelical leaders across the country. Also, they care about the personal well-being of pastors and leaders, so they provide space and opportunities to experience spiritual renewal to ensure leaders flourish both privately and publicly. A polarized country needs a peacemaking church. Check us out at Matthew59.org. Sign up for our monthly newsletter and download free resources such as our Transcending Toxic Polarization booklet using the code Matthew59. You know, I remember years ago hearing uh, someone say, a theologian, say, that, well, what's important is the death of Christ, and it doesn't matter how he died. He could have fallen and hit his head on a, uh, on a log, and it would have been the same thing as crucifixion. That was uh, justly controversial uh, at the time. But I was struck as I was reading your book, uh, and you repeat this uh, several times in different ways, that no other form of execution could have communicated what the cross does, that there's something really unique about crucifixion. What what is that? Well, I did make a point of that, and I still do make a point of that. I do want to make one qualifying statement about that. Mm. A new edition of my book, actually, it's not a new edition. It's the second printing. The second printing of the crucifixion, which I think started coming out maybe six months ago. I'm not quite sure, has an afterword in it. I had not read James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, when the book went, my book went to press. And that was a great mistake. Mm. I didn't even know about the book. I'm annoyed, I must say, from all the people who could have told me about it and didn't. <laughs> the only thing that I know of that is comparable to crucifixion in its, its horror, its cold, calculated brutality, its state-sanctioned nature, its deliberate public character, inviting everyone to come and look and take pictures. There are a lot of similarities between crucifixion okay. and lynching, lynching of black people in the American South that I think should be noted. And I didn't note them because I hadn't read the book and hadn't thought about it. But I yeah. think it comes closer. I think lynching of black people in the American South comes closer to the nature of crucifixion in the ways I just enumerated than anything else I can think of. Um, it's not quite the same, but it comes closer, I think. It, it was spectacularly Public. It was an entertainment. Mm -hmm. People were invited to participate in the entertainment of this humiliation and unspeakable agony. And we can't even imagine the horror of the um, insults that were hurled at Jesus all during the night before and all the time that he was on the cross. That's what crucifixion was supposed to do. It was in public so that everybody would walk by. That's a little different from lynching. It wasn't just a selected crowd. It was everybody that passed by. Mm -hmm. And that was deliberate. This thing that you see on this 
cross is not really even a human being. It's like a vile insect that needs to be exterminated in the most brutal way. Mm. You can go on and on making comments, make observations about how horrible crucifixion was. All right, why is that? Why was it so horrible? It would be interesting to have several people here to, to talk about that. It would help me if you would perhaps give me an experience or two or three from your own teaching and preaching and work with the church um, as to whether this is something that's been discussed very much. Yeah, I think uh, some of it is having to explain to people why there's such an emphasis in the New Testament on not being ashamed of the cross. And and I think uh, often uh, people in churches in, in my circles often assume that that emphasis is there just to say, don't be bashful about being a Christian. Uh, which of course is true, but but not what not what that's about, and don't get just how shameful uh, it would have been in the first century uh, in the Roman Empire to say, uh, "I know nothing but Christ and Him crucified." That's that's really shameful and horrifying to people. In a way, I think it's hard for it's hard for modern people to understand why that would be the case. I'm so glad you said that because I sort of neglected to go in that direction. My book of uh, sermons on Romans uh, is called "Not Ashamed of the Gospel," mm-hmm. and of course, as you know, this you're just quoting Paul, who said, "I am not ashamed of the gospel." And we should stop and say, "Why should he be ashamed of the gospel?" And this is the reason. Mm-hmm. Crucifixion was unspeakable. It was something that the upper classes of Romans never mentioned, never talked about, never alluded to. It was a disgusting, unmentionable, despised, revolting. You're not going to string two adjectives together. It was just, this is a known fact that the, the ancient Roman uh, upper classes never talked about crucifixion. It was something for people who, who were beneath contempt. Mm. And I have been going around saying and expecting to be opposed in this, but no one ever has. For a long time, I've been trying this out. One sentence. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we would never have heard of him. I was just about to quote that to you and to ask you about it. So I'm so glad you mentioned it. Yes. (laughs) Well, I have said that in public for 20 or more years, and I always expect to be to have someone jump up and say, I can give you an example. (laughs) But I've not had anybody give me an example. Spartacus was not crucified. His followers were, and we don't know any of their names. The purpose of crucifixion, the reason I'm saying this, the purpose of crucifixion was to erase this human being from the memory of humanity. Just just throw him off, throw him down away like a dog. I mean, in fact, you wouldn't treat a dog as badly. Mm. Torture him to death. Put him up on a stick for everybody to see. Bring everybody by to say the worst possible things they possibly can about him. Throw things at him. It's just almost incomprehensible how horrible it was. Mm. And it had a purpose, which was to say to the greater Roman population, this person whom you see on this cross is really not a human being like you. This is what the state does to people who 
cross it. And we do not know the name of any crucified person before Jesus' time. Mm. We know, I guess, the names of some people who were crucified after Jesus, but uh, not before. He would have been, he would have disappeared from the record of humanity. And that's why the gospel is so extraordinary. The fact that people started proclaiming this crucified man as, as Lord and God is more unthinkable than we realize today. And I do feel as if a lot of the things we say about the crucifixion just aren't sufficient. We don't make an effort to explain to people how dreadful it was. A famous journalist wrote that Jesus on the cross must have been a spectacle to behold, gruesome beyond words. That's what the famous painter Grunewald tried to convey in mm-hmm. his painting of the crucifixion, the the torture of it, the, the inhumanity of it, the disgusting nature of it. Jesus' body on the cross, Jesus on the cross, must have been ghastly to behold. Mm-hmm. I think we should hold that in our minds. I think we should say that in sermons. I think we should make sure that everybody understands that, that the crucified body of Jesus was ghastly to behold. Mm. And the word behold is important too, not just to see, but to behold, to see through what's going on here. To behold the crucified Jesus is to be simply lost in awe Mm. of the unprecedented nature of what is happening and that this is the Son of God that we're looking at. This is not a martyred religious person. This is God doing the ultimate thing, the ultimate Mm. rescue of the world from the bondage of sin and death. Mm. You know, my favorite section uh, of the book, and I'll tell you why, Uh, because I find myself so often now encountering people, Christians, who feel guilty. Uh, They they feel ashamed. They find it very hard to believe that God has forgiven them. They can believe it at the cognitive level, but they, they can't really feel as though they're forgiven. And you have a section in the book about uh, prevenient grace, grace that goes before us, and that by the time you recognize your sinful state before God, you're you're already, in a sense, standing in grace. Uh, that that you're already there, being being led to look toward Him, and I just think it's a really beautiful uh, truth and one that is so hard for people to believe. Because it seems I encounter some people who think, well, I don't have anything to be forgiven of. But then uh, a, a lot a lot more people, I think, who would think, if if anybody really knew me, I could never be really forgiven. And uh, that, that section on uh, the grace coming from the cross out before us just is really powerful to talk to people about. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um... I do like to retell the little story that Karl Barth tells about the rider at night in the snowstorm who is lost 
um, without realizing it, on his horse, this is in Switzerland, on his horse he crosses a frozen lake safely and arrives on the other side and is rescued. And the people say, who rescue him say, do you realize what you just did? Do you realize the danger you were in? You were crossing a frozen lake. And he collapses to realize what he has escaped. Mm. And I just think that's the best story I've heard, little legend, with the kind of punch that when we really understand what God has done to forgive us, better still, to restore us, mm. not just to forgive us, but to restore us and to remake us, well, falling to our knees would be the proper response. Mm. And overwhelming gratitude and joy mm. that we have escaped and that we're safe. But that doesn't happen without some sort of tremendous contrast. The contrast between the danger he was in and the discovery that he's been saved is what makes the story work. And it's also what makes the stories in our lives work. If we don't think we need to be forgiven for anything, if we don't think we were in all that much danger in the first place, then we'll never understand grace. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I think we will never understand sin either. When people who are not deeply steeped in Scripture talk about sin, they don't mean sin. They mean misdeeds of some sort. Harm. Harm, yeah, that's often used. Well, to harm another person is, to be sure, sinful. Mm-hmm. But the word sin is connected to God. Yeah. And it is the fruit of Satan. And it is related to the fall. And until we understand how we're all involved in those things, then we can't really understand what the forgiveness of sin means. Mm-hmm. Because we don't understand what sin means. It's because we don't know who God is. Yeah. And the way that we can perhaps understand this is to immerse ourselves in the multitudinous images of what Christ is accomplishing in his death. He's doing it for sin. Well, what does that mean? I don't think people understand what that means and need help in understanding it. So that's the job of preachers and teachers in the church. And I don't think we're doing a very good job because at least in my mainline circles, what we're doing is saying that we are a sinful society because we have committed racism, which is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't really get at the nature of the individuals, of the universal nature of Satan's work. The, the universal understanding of how the entire creation is groaning, as Paul says. It isn't just a bad person here and a bad person there, or a bad deed here and a bad deed there that needs to be forgiven, and then we can go on our merry way. It is that we are all mm. implicated. Those who are woke and those who can't stand woke, all of us <laughs> are implicated in the work of Satan. And unless we are freed from it by some act from outside ourselves, we will never be free. Mm. And this is the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist 
was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You talk about in the book, uh, all of these forms of a kind of Gnostic spirituality, labyrinths and any other uh, number of things. And one of the things that we find... Self-healing. Yes, self-healing. One of the things we find is that there are a lot of people who would call themselves spiritual, but not religious. And they're they're looking for mindfulness and, and, and those sorts of ways to have a spirituality apart from religion. And then a lot of uh, a lot of Christians who feel spiritually dead and are trying to find some way to find genuine, authentic spirituality. How should we be thinking about that in a moment? Oh, like this, this is definitely one of the biggest challenges in in our culture. Do it yourself, religion assisted by various spiritual figures who participate in this idea that we can get in touch with spiritual reality by our own efforts and that it really doesn't make much difference what you believe as long as you believe in goodness and kindness and looking out for others and other often very vague commitments that we're supposed to be making. And sometimes we think we're doing quite well on that. And sometimes we know we're not doing very well on that. But all of that is a form of works righteousness, colored by a kind of rosy glow of blending with the universe and the creator. And it's all very unspecific. It's deliberately unspecific in a lot of cases. I've known many churches and many church uh, conference centers and church programs, which they really don't talk about Jesus anymore, or if they do, they talk about him as a someone to emulate. Mostly they're talking about creation, creator, in a very vague kind of way, not connected to the God of the Old Testament who brings his people out of bondage into a completely new community. That's well-known to the black church. It's not so well-known to the white church. Mm. We think that somehow we can get on the good side of God by doing more and more and more social justice and thereby alienating a great many people who need to be saved just as much as uh, 
the poor souls we think we're trying to say, if I'm going in circles, I realize, but I think that the thinking goes in circles because we think that we can be merciful and thereby obtain mercy, but then we can't be merciful, so we make excuses about not being merciful, and we just end up by sort of giving up. We end up either by giving up because the culture is overwhelming us, Mm. or we kind of bestow the halo of sainthood on ourselves in our own group and look down on those who don't share our commitments. There's an awful lot of that. That's the virtue signaling that we're all prone to do. Mm-hmm. Look at us. Look what we're doing compared to what you're doing. And just come and join us on the right side of everything. But that doesn't have anything to do with who Jesus is except as, a, as an example. It doesn't have anything to do with why he died this terrible death. Mm-hmm. Except I suppose we could do what Rene Girard has done and talk about Jesus as the ultimate victim. That's a way oversimplification. There's some good things in Gerard's thought, I'm sure. But I don't really go for this victimization emphasis that Jesus became a victim in order to be in solidarity with all the victims of the earth. That is an oversimplification, but I hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. That is really the meaning of Jesus, that he became a victim. And uh, so that gives us a kind of feeling of virtue if we are being victims in the culture wars. For instance, yeah. Uh, I don't know whether I'm. I really would like to think that all of this conversation is going to gather together and come out somewhere, but I'm beginning to think that I'm confusing it by bringing in so many different ideas and so many different no, themes. Not. So I'm looking to you to keep me on the track. Here. <laughs> well, I, I I think it's uh, I think it's good to have so many different themes uh, coming together here. And uh, I I wanted to ask one uh, last question. Uh, you mentioned before we went on the air that that you think this might be uh, the last one of these interviews that you do which I hope it's not, but you you mentioned it might be. One of the things that's striking to me is when we look at, I spend a lot of my time in my evangelical Christian corner of the world uh, talking about um, what's happening with young uh, people within our churches and so forth. But when you look at, when you look at mainline Protestant trends just in terms of people leaving and institutions uh, collapsing, it's really, really uh, stark. Uh, and you, of course, have, have given uh, your life working within mainline Protestantism within the Episcopal Church. What do you think is the future of mainline Protestantism in terms of, uh, do, you think that, do you think that there's a recovery of uh, of mainline Protestantism that can happen, or is God just doing something? Well, of new? course, I think about this every day as I see churches closing all around me, and as I see my own grandchildren turning away from the church, which is the great heartbreak of my husband's and my life at the present time. Our children are Christians, but not our grandchildren, and that's the pattern now. Mm-hmm. But I also keep meeting these extraordinary young people who are deep believers. I mean, grounded. They're not just talking about going off and being, walking around a labyrinth. These are people who are really studying Scripture. They are really 
wrestling with the big questions. They are in small communities of other people who are doing the same thing. Even if there are only a few thousand of them in a given, or even a few hundreds in a given location, that's enough. God can do, you know, God started with 12 disciples. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important for us to look at the places where life is happening and not get bogged down with what's not happening. I know a lot of people who are actually even going to graduate school to study advanced systematic theology because they're so deeply committed to the what I would call the genuine gospel, as Paul proclaimed it. There are is so much wonderful work being done in Paul's epistles. Now, this is a very small group that's reading them, but but this work is so exciting, and it is attracting a very high level of young person, I've discovered, in their late 20s, mid-30s, maybe early 40s. I'm talking about people who are 50 years younger than I am. Mm-hmm. And they're around. They're out there. And in the oddest places in some cases. I think that those, all of those young people about whom I care very deeply, um, and I know you do, um, they need to be fortified by people who are leaders in the church who will say to them, don't get off the track with all this extraneous stuff that's so popular, all this talk about spirituality and self-help and we could go on. It's all Gnostic. That's what it is. It's Gnostic, all of it. Gnosticism has always been the great enemy of Christian faith. But there's also um, a very encouraging set of conversations going on between, let's say, evangelicals and Catholics. And I think it's very fruitful in a a lot of cases. Of course, a lot of Catholics are at war among themselves, too. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But this has always been the case. We see that in the New Testament from one end to the other. The little young young churches are splintering even as we see them in the first, second, third centuries. Um, But so there's always going to be heresy, and I don't mind saying that, and there's always going to be... um, incomprehension and a lack of commitment and confusion and people giving up. But I just think we need to focus on those younger people who are there and who read what I write and who read each other's work and encourage each other. Mm -hmm. And you are a very important figure because you have dared to confront what passes for the gospel in the United States and and have represented the rest of us in summoning at least some of the secular journalists and television producers and consumers of media that there is another kind of church out there. It's not all what we see among the supporters of certain agendas that have caused you to move on because you couldn't do it in the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm going to always look toward the people who are deeply aware of the sinful condition of human 
of the human being, the human race, deeply aware of God's death on the cross as God's not answer to the problem or answer to the question, but as God's final culminating act of righteousness mm. by which his creation will be made new. Mm. Word righteousness very important, not, not often used. The way that Paul uses the word righteousness, justification, deliverance, that's at the very heart of what I believe people are thrilled to hear. Mm. And, of course, it is at the heart of reform preaching. It's not so easily found elsewhere. So that's why I'm a reform thinker, Mm -hmm. because I believe that this emphasis on the righteousness of God as an action that God has done to save his creation, and in so doing, justifying each one of us. Mm. That's the message. And that is all God's doing. And that is what gives us the power and the courage and the faith and the hope to go on mm. and to be like Russell Moore. <laughs> well, I hope better than that. <laughs> you know, I, I find it really interesting. Uh, as you were talking, I, I realized we started talking about the future of the church and we ended up at the cross which is exactly Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail uh, upon it. And then immediately the text turns to the cross, people of the cross. Fleming Rutledge, your book, uh, The Crucifixion, has uh, altered the way that I see so many things and is such a gift to the church, and you are uh, as well. And thank you for being with me today. Thank you for asking me. Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for the Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.